you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 23, beginning of verse 13. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I'll therefore punish and release him. But they cry, all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, the man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. Third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now reading from verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances said, acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things. Let's pray. God, as we too stand at a distance watching these things, would you help us see? Would you help us to see? what the death of Jesus means for him, for us, and for the world. 
Give us ears to hear these words and lives that rejoice and obey, all for the glory of your Son. Amen. Well, good morning. It is great to be with you uh, on this Good Friday, as we do what we do every year on Good Friday and contemplate the death of Jesus. As we start doing that, though, I want to start by being upfront. I'm not entirely sure how to feel on Good Friday. I don't know if you've ever had that yourself, but I've been a Christian a long time. I've been to plenty of services like this, and every year it's kind of the same. I'm a little bit unsure. Is this happy or sad? Because on the one hand, it's all about death, isn't it? And on the other, it's a good Friday. Now, it's just a Friday thing. Easter Sunday is easy. We know how to feel on Sunday, right? It's just great. But Good Friday is, is a strange tension. It, it's emotionally blurry, a, a collision of conflicting feelings. I've been to lots of planning meetings about Good Friday services, and it's the same there too. Every year, about four weeks out, the team sits down and says, okay, how dark this year? Do we want to go full emo or bring some more hope? How early do we want to bleed it in? Or do we just, do we sing the songs or wait until Sunday? Maybe you've never been to a Good Friday service. I reckon you've probably felt that tension already. Because if, like me, you felt the need to wear some nicer shoes than normal, because this feels a little bit formal, you'll then be confused when you walk out that door and see that there's hot cross buns, but not just any hot cross buns, some with chopped chips in them. And if that doesn't say party, I don't know what does. And so we we come with a sense that this is a somber occasion, and yet we sing songs of joy together. We spend the day thinking about death, and we'll do it in a major key. So this morning, I want to enter into the story of Jesus' death. And as we do, I want to enter into this emotional tension. I want to ask... How should we feel as we gaze upon the cross? We'll enter into this story in three parts. The first part I've called a death undeserved. The pain of a crucifixion was so extreme that they had to come up with a new word to describe it. Excruciating which means to torture, torment, or inflict very severe pain on as if by crucifixion. It's not hard to see why. The mechanics of crucifixion are just awful. The weight of your body on your arms becomes so heavy that it's nearly impossible to breathe. And so crucifixion is kind of elegant in its simplicity. You just nail someone to a cross and wait. Either for their breath to stop or their heart to give out, whichever happens first. So as we turn to Luke's account of the death of Jesus, it's just not hard for us to imagine the pain of this scene. The sharp thorns twisted into a crown thrust into the skull of Jesus. 
the blood and sweat coming together on his forehead to trickle down his face. The open wounds on his back aching from the reed that they beat him with. His hands and feet throbbing from the pain of the nails, lungs burning as they search for just one more breath. It's not hard to feel the pain of this scene. Having said that, if you look closely at Luke's gospel and the way he tells this story, it's striking that the verses don't spend much time here on the physical pain. We we have to imagine it. Because he mentions things that would absolutely have been painful, but he doesn't dwell on them. Instead, he wants to direct our attention to something else entirely. The shame. See, we don't know the size of the nails. We don't know the number of Jesus' wounds. But we do know exactly who mocked him. And we know exactly what they said to do it. Verse 35, the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And it was the soldiers who teased him about his claim to be this king. And they said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. At every turn, Luke is very careful to point out the shame of the cross. The sheer humiliation that Jesus faced. And, and as we look on the pain and the shame of Jesus' death on the cross, all sorts of emotions start to feel appropriate, don't they? Sadness. Or maybe we feel confronted by the gruesome reality, ashamed of the human capacity for evil like this. But as we consider the events that put him there, another feeling begins to rise to the surface. Outrage. There's no doubt that crucifixion is a terrible way to die. It is, by every definition, a cruel and unusual punishment. But it begs the question, what's he done to deserve this? And the answer Luke gives us is, it's not clear. He's been tried more than once. And on every occasion... The judge has been unwilling to call him guilty. Quite the opposite, in fact. Pilate, again and again, through this chapter, declares that this man is innocent. The charge against him is blasphemy and being a threat to Caesar. But but that seems strange, because Caesar himself is just not feeling threatened. And yet, for some reason, Jesus doesn't defend himself. At every point, he has the opportunity to speak up, to point out all the inconsistencies in the case against him, to show the evidence that would exonerate him from these charges, and yet he doesn't. We've seen him call down power from heaven, from God's angels before. He could do it again, but in the face of these accusations, though Jesus is not powerless, He is silent. 
stunningly, blisteringly quiet. No reply, no defense. Even the governor, Pilate, who's in charge of his sentencing, cannot wrap his head around it. In verse 12, when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. But then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So we have to ask, how can this man be sentenced to death? But then the scene gets worse. Pilate says, look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, away with this man. And release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city, and for murder. See, each year around this time, the governor released a prisoner to the people. And Barabbas was a notorious one. Famous for murder and for being the face of a rebel insurrection movement, determined to do whatever it takes to overthrow the government. Everybody knew that this was a bad man. A thief, a murderer, a a domestic terrorist. That's a crime punishable by crucifixion. There is a man who deserves everything he has coming to him, and so surely people will see sense. As they see Jesus, who is quite obviously innocent, and Barabbas, who is quite obviously innocent, not surely they can see who deserves the cross but no they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed so pilate decided that their demand should be granted he released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Pilate knows the depth of pain awaiting the one to be crucified. He knows what lies ahead, and yet he cannot and will not do anything to stop it. In the face of the cries of the crowd, Matthew tells us that Pilate washes his hands in front of the people, and sends Jesus to his death. As we look at this scene, we start to feel that injustice. We feel more than just the pain and the shame. We feel the prejudice and the discrimination and the outrage. And as we feel all of these things together, it might start to seem like the only things to feel are the darkness And that's true. Unless we're able to see this scene, unless we're able to view this story through the eyes of somebody else. Just imagine for a moment what it would be like 
to watch this unfold as Barabbas. It takes us to part two, a life undeserved. When Barabbas woke up on Friday morning, he was confident it would be his last. He'd been charged, sentenced, imprisoned and waiting for his slaughter. This is the day he dies. So imagine sitting in that cell, knowing that today is going to be your last. You, you think through the humiliation that awaits you, the, the look of satisfaction on the soldier's face as they finally get their guy. You think about the cries of mocking and the pain of the nails in your hands and feet to come. And so as you hear the footsteps of the guard coming down the corridor, your pulse begins to quicken. The door opens, all you can see is a silhouette. And you wait for him to reach out and take you by the arm and drag you away to your death. And he doesn't. He kneels down. He unlocks your chains. And he says something you never thought you'd hear again. Barabbas, you're free. Bewildered, you start to tiptoe out of your cell and down the hall past the guards who make no attempt to stop you. And you walk out into the open air. And the sunlight is so bright and so foreign that it takes you a little while to blink it away. But when you do, you see that there's a crowd beginning to gather over the hill. And so you go to see what it's all about. And then you see him. A man battered, bruised and beaten, too weak to carry his own cross, walking towards his death. You see them mocking him, spitting at him, beating him, nailing his hands and feet to the wood, raising him up on the cross for all to see. And that's when it hits you. It should have been me. It should have been me. That's the punishment that I deserved. The pain and the shame and the price that was mine to pay. That cross had my name on it. Those nails belonged to me. And yet, here is another in my place. We've got to wonder, how does Barabbas feel in that moment, 
surely that is a collision of conflicting feelings. Guilty yet relieved. Ashamed yet joyful somehow. This man has taken the punishment that should have been his, dying the death that that he deserved, and, and now he gets to walk away. That's a strange tension to navigate. And I think that's probably why Good Friday feels so confusing to us as well. Because the more we reflect on the experience of Barabbas, the more we begin to realize his story is our story. In so many ways, we are just like him. I don't know whether you've tried to overthrow a government recently. But the Bible is clear that all of us are guilty of treason against the ruler who made us. He gives us everything. Life itself, your next breath. A gift from God. And yet we reject his authority and seek to replace him on the throne. He's the rightful king over all creation and yet we rise up against him and rebel. We just make a mess of the lives he's given us. And the Bible says that's a crime punishable by death. Not just any death, an excruciating death as God leaves us to our own desires. We walk away from him and he lets us go so that we're no longer welcome in his presence, no longer able to get near him. We we walk away from him and so he turns his back on us. Like Barabbas, treason is our crime. And yet like Barabbas, someone stands in our place. Someone else faced the death that was ours. Someone else faced the desertion that we deserved as he cried out on the cross instead of us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our nails never come because somebody else took them for us. The condemnation and judgment never arrive because someone else takes them in our place. The theological term for this is penal substitution, which is just to say a substitute who pays your penalty so that you don't have to. And I once experienced a fairly mild version of penal substitution as a university student. I was about 20 at the time. I had no money and lots of time. And so when a friend of mine, Pete, asked if I could drive him and his family to the airport, I didn't have anything else to do. So we jumped in his big van, and I watched very carefully as he drove, navigated this big bus around the corners, and then it was my turn. 
Pete and his family left me with the car to drive it back to their house, and so things were going pretty well. I got out of the airport okay, I got onto the freeway, I got to the city, and then, in my hubris, decided to stop and see a friend. So I parked in the city, saw my friend, came back to the car and thought nothing of it. Turns out I'd stayed a little too long. Got a parking ticket. Problem was, this van was so big that I just didn't see it. And so I dropped their car off with a parking ticket unpaid, still on the windscreen. (laughs) Some days after Pete and his family got back, I discovered what had happened. A friend of mine politely let me know just how big of a jerk I was. And I was mortified. So I went up to Pete and said, Pete, I understand I've left a parking ticket. I'm so sorry. Let me take care of that. And he reached into his pocket and pulled out a little white piece of paper. It's a parking ticket with three words scribbled across it in red. Paid in full. I said, Pete, don't be silly. Let, Let me give you some money for this. It was entirely my fault, not yours. And he said, I don't want your money. I said, why not? I'm not kidding, he said. Because one day, you're going to have to explain penal substitution to people. (laughs) And I thought this would make a good illustration. (laughs) True story. (laughs) Well, we're even now, me and Pete, so that's good. (laughs) But he's right. That is exactly how it works. I owed a price, a penalty, a punishment, and he paid it for me. And I've got to tell you, in that moment, I just had no idea how to feel. Guilty and relieved. Ashamed yet joyful somehow. That's just a tiny glimpse of what Barabbas experiences. Because when it comes to Barabbas, his story is our story because his sin is like our sin and even better than that, his substitute is our substitute. If we believe in Jesus, our penalty has been paid in full. It's just not ours to bear anymore. Get this, your nails will never come. God will never turn his back on you. How do we know? That brings us to part three, the temple, the table. Here's the moment of Jesus' death according to Luke in verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. It's kind of a matter of fact, really. It's strikingly sparse in the details. Just drops it there. But just before he recounts this historical moment, he sprinkles in a single sentence so small that you might miss it, but so significant that it changes the world forever. Look at this in verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
The curtain of the temple was torn into. The temple, the religious center of God's people at the time where God was said to dwell and where people were not allowed to go. See, in the temple, you don't have free access to God because you're a sinner. As far as the temple is concerned, people were unclean. And so only one person, only once a year, could enter in to the most holy place. And even then, only after a whole lot of rituals to make themselves clean. And so to limit access, the temple had at its center a giant curtain which was there to separate us from God. That was its job. And this curtain served as a huge reminder of the reality that people are dirty and need to be distant from God. Until now. As the curtain is torn in two, in just a few words, almost a throwaway line in Luke's Gospel, the age of dirt and distance from God comes to an end. As the temple curtain is torn apart. Now that's not our reality anymore. He invites us, God himself invites us just to walk right in. To come and spend time with him with all our sin, with all our guilt, with all our pain and shame. God invites us to come to him. He longs to welcome us with open arms because dirt and distance are just not our story anymore. Here's the good news of Good Friday. If you put your faith in Jesus' death for you, where you were dirty and distant, he will make you clean and bring you close. He will make you clean and bring you close. So what do we do about that? How do we even begin to respond? Well, here's one thing you must not do in the face of the cross. You must not crucify yourself. See how strange it would have been for Barabbas to be set free and then walk himself back into his prison cell and put his chains back on. How strange for me to go and pay that parking fine a second time. How strange it would be for us to see Jesus paying our penalty on the cross and then punish ourselves all over again. We're free now. The price has been paid. There is nothing left to pay. So don't put yourself in chains. Don't beat yourself up. Don't act like God wants to punish you. He doesn't. His wrath has been poured out and there is not a drop left. They're not your nails anymore. It's not your cross. Because Jesus paid the price in full. 
So don't crucify yourself. Instead, I've got a better idea. Come to the table. We don't have a temple anymore as Christians, but we do have this communion. We're going to take communion now to remember and celebrate the death of Jesus for us. Because Jesus commanded us to. On the night he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he'd given God thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup, and again, giving God thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, Drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is our way of remembering and celebrating the death of Jesus for us. That his body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me and now I can come as I am free and forgiven, clean and close. So if you are a believer in Jesus, come to the table. Come and rejoice and remember his death for you. If you're not a believer in Jesus, it's so great that you've joined us this morning. I'd invite you to stay where you are just reflect. What does Good Friday mean to you? But more importantly, what could it mean to you if Jesus was to become your substitute? And if you're someone who's feeling heavy with guilt and shame and you're not a believer yet, but maybe you'd like to be, you're aware of your sin and you want Jesus to be your substitute, he can. I invite you, come to the table. Become a Christian. Today is a good Friday to do that. As you do, I invite you to come, take the bread and the juice, but also grab a bag from Andrew on your way up because there's a few next steps you might like to take in there and a couple of gifts for you to send you on your way. Here's how the logistics will work. We're all going to come down the middle to the front and take the bread and the juice and then head back to our seats before we eat them so that we might eat and drink together and I'll talk us through it then. So I'll invite the band up. Take a moment to reflect and then when you're ready, please come take some bread and some juice and a bag. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.